Unless you've been a solicitor yourself before and then become a pharmacist, it would be pretty impossible to do a pharmacy purchase. Even as a lawyer, it, it takes years of experience and practice to do these transactions, to know what the loopholes are and where things can go wrong and avoid it. Hi, I'm Georgina O'Dell from Meridian Lawyers, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Focusing on pharmacy management and ownership, the PDCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. At times, owning and running a pharmacy business can be overwhelmingly challenging. Seeking the assistance of a pharmacy lawyer is critical to your success as a pharmacy owner. Not only can a lawyer assist you to navigate through the complexities of business ownership, an experienced pharmacy lawyer can also support you through any conflicts or incidents that may arise. Consulting a suitably experienced pharmacy lawyer at an early stage can often prevent the kinds of issues and disputes which may adversely affect the value of your business later on. And in this episode, Principal Georgina O'Dell from Meridian Lawyers spends some time with us discussing why, through the various stages of pharmacy ownership, it is useful to have a legal expert engaged to provide insights and support to help you manage risks and offer sound advice. Here's Georgina. Hi, Georgie. Welcome to the show. And I'm looking forward to this chat very much. Let's start with the first steps because many pharmacies going into business for the first time will maybe not have instructed a lawyer before, except perhaps maybe when buying their home, but that's a fairly straightforward process a lot of the time. At what stages in, I think, the life cycle of a pharmacy business should pharmacists engage with a lawyer? What are some of those key phases or events where they should be engaging a lawyer? Really, they should be engaging with a lawyer at the beginning of the life cycle of a pharmacy business and also at the end. And whenever there are changes in the business as well, that, that's the time to, it's a time of risk whenever there's change and it's a time to consider whether you might need legal advice at that point. Very often, first contact with a pharmacist is when they're looking to buy a pharmacy or an interest in a pharmacy. They might not be buying the whole business. They might just be, they might be working in a pharmacy at the moment as an employee, perhaps a younger pharmacist looking to buy, say, 25% from their employer. We also, we come across pharmacists um, when they're looking to start completely new pharmacies, for example, in a a new medical centre. And they're trying to work out whether their circumstances fit within the pharmacy location rules. um, And they're trying to work out how to make the necessary applications to the pharmacy council and to the ACPA. So whenever, whenever there are changes, like I say, if you're taking a new lease of your premises, um, if you're taking a franchise agreement, if you're going into partnership, if you're relocating a pharmacy, that's quite a complex process sometimes. Or if you're changing the name or the size of the pharmacy, that's a good time to have a think, do I need some legal advice about how to do this? And those are the, those are the common circumstances when we come across pharmacists who call us and say, look, I'm thinking about doing this. How, how can you input into this process? Engaging and instructing a lawyer, for me personally, and I don't know how the listeners feel about this, but it always sounds like a a really big and scary and and complicated proposition. We have to instruct 
a lawyer. What is the actual process when you instruct a lawyer? What happens? First of all, I think the most important thing is to do some research so that you get someone that's got pharmacy law experience. And the more experienced, the better, because it is a it is a specialism on its own within the law. And so that would be Google searches, basically, looking for, for pharmacy lawyers. And uh, I think the next step then would be to just get on the telephone for that particular lawyer that you've um, that you've identified. You, you may have identified two or three, probably recommend that you do that and just get on the telephone, see how responsive they are. Most lawyers will have an initial chat with you. Uh, without charge, they you know they want to connect with you. They want to see what your issue is, and then they'll advise you about how they can they can help you with that issue. One of the things that you should be asking for is a costs estimate for whatever the particular piece of work is. For example, if you're buying a pharmacy, um, do ask what the likely cost is going to be of, of um, advising on that purchase, and then you can compare the responses. Um, you know, whether you get on with them, whether you can work with them, what the likely cost is going to be. And you should receive a follow-up email from the lawyer just confirming what you've spoken about, the costs estimate. Another important part of instructing a lawyer is a conflict check. So um, if you do want to proceed um, to instruct this particular lawyer to act for you, the lawyer will need to know any other parties who are involved in the transaction, for example, if you're buying a pharmacy, they'll want to know who the vendor is so that they can carry out a conflict check and make sure that they and no one else in the firm is already acting for the vendor because we can't act for the purchaser and the vendor. It has to be separate. And then I think the next stage of the process is for the solicitor to provide you with an engagement letter or a costs agreement, just basically setting out the detail of the terms of business and what those costs are, are likely to be. And then you're away, you've, uh, you're in, you've got your lawyer instructed and um, they will be acting on your behalf. I love that phrase. We're away. We're potentially going to be buying a new pharmacy and many pharmacists looking to buy a pharmacy for the first time they may not actually understand that whole transaction process. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and the role of the lawyer in buying a pharmacy or or maybe even just a share in a pharmacy? I always think that there are roughly five stages in the buying process. And the first stage is when you're preparing to buy, when you're looking for a pharmacy, um, you're getting an idea about where you want to buy, Uh, whether you want to buy into a franchise group or a buying group or whether you want to be an independent community pharmacy. At this stage, you should also be, as well as um, sourcing your lawyer, you should be sourcing a really good pharmacy accountant, really invaluable to have an accountant that's got experience of pharmacy business. Um, And you should be getting some advice about what structure you should be setting up to actually buy the pharmacy through. Um, So you're starting to put your team together And you're starting to identify and you'll be speaking to business brokers looking for the particular pharmacy that you're going to go for. The second stage is when you're negotiating contracts for the purchase. So this is where the hard work starts, really. Um, The contract is normally prepared by the vendor, the seller of the business and their lawyers, because they've got all the information about the business. But that means that when that contract arrives with you and your solicitor, it's usually weighted in favour of the vendor. So we have to go through a process when we're acting for the purchaser of negotiating that contract. And it's perfectly normal for there to be several iterations of the contract while we say what we want, they say what they want, and we finally we get we realize no one's going to give anymore. This is this is the way it's going to be. 
And during this process, you should be carrying out legal and financial due diligence. Financial due diligence is really, really important when you're buying a pharmacy, as is legal due diligence. And it's a process of your accountant and your lawyer checking and verifying everything that you're being told about the business, um, looking at usually three years financial statements, making sure that everything that should be reflected in there is reflected in there. And um, the due diligence, the legal due diligence informs what needs to go in the contract. So, for example, one of the first things that I will look at when a pharmacist is looking to buy a pharmacy is do what's called a title search and find a copy of the lease of the premises. Most pharmacies are leased and um, that lease might have expired. We come across that quite a lot, especially when the vendor pharmacist is coming to the end of their life cycle in the business and they, they haven't bothered to renew their lease. And then you know as a purchaser that you need to um, put a condition in the contract for the grant of a new lease to the purchaser because you don't want to enter into a legally binding agreement to buy that pharmacy unless you know that it's a condition that the landlord offers you a new lease on acceptable terms. Um, so we, we find everything out that we need to know about the business. We look at the who's got the business name, who the business name is registered to. We will advise on the terms of the lease. Are there any terms of the lease which are really unacceptable? And um, we find out actually during the legal due diligence, we find out all sorts of things which we, which we have to kind of clear out as we negotiate the contract. So some of the things that we find out about are, um, for example, the name that I will just do a Google search on a pharmacy and I'll look at the name and the address of the pharmacy. And it's amazing um, the number of times when there's a difference between an address or a name and what is registered on the Pharmacy Council website, which then alerts me to the fact that there's been a change, such as a change of name or a change of address, whether it's just not because the pharmacy's actually physically moved, but the, the, the street might have been renamed or something like that. Um, and we, need, we then know that we need to have that approved retrospectively by the Pharmacy Council. So it's those kind of, those kind of things that we go through. And we just get a, a snapshot of the business and we understand what, what work we need to do and what we need to put in the contract. We also, at this stage, um, do what's called PPSR searches, which are to give them their technical term, personal properties and securities um, searches, which effectively uh, alert us to any, they're, they're like mortgages, they're charges, security interests over the business, and they might be over the stock as well. And we then know what we're dealing with in terms of uh, current security over the business. It might be NAB, it might be Bank of Queensland, it might be whoever having security over that business and the stock. And we know then that at settlement, we've got to make sure that that is paid off and discharged. So that's that's the second stage. And then the third stage is when everyone's happy with the contracts, um, they're signed and they're exchanged. Um, and in the olden days, it used to be that the solicitors would turn up face to face and each would have a copy signed by their own uh, client and they'd physically exchange those contracts. But nowadays, obviously, and especially in uh, the last 18 months, almost everything is done electronically. So we exchange contracts and they're legally binding from that stage, subject to satisfaction of any conditions. Um, it's at this stage, the exchange stage, that you pay the deposit, which is usually 10% of the purchase price. And purchasers need to remember that at this stage, you will not have drawn down on your loan. So you need to have 10% 
cleared funds available of your own monies to, to actually pay that deposit, just like when you buy a house. Fourth stage um, is when you satisfy the conditions precedent and with a pharmacy that might be a purchaser getting their offer of finance. It might be, well, it, it will almost invariably be um, applying to the landlord for consent to transfer the lease to the new buyer. Or in New South Wales, seeking the approval of the Pharmacy Council of New South Wales to the um, change of ownership of the pharmacy and the purchaser applying for a new PBS number. At this stage, um, I always put clauses in my contracts which allow purchaser to interview the employees because there's no right to interview employees um, unless it's in that contract. Um, and the purchaser will be deciding who he or she wants to stay in the business, making offers of employment. Um, every contract of sale is different. So it's really important that the pharmacist knows what's in that contract and make sure that there's anything important to you it's in there and your solicitor knows about it. Then the fifth stage is the exciting bit, which is completion. So on the last business day before completion, there is generally a stock take because a, a lot of the, um, I mean, pharmacies are retail businesses and there's a lot of stock usually, high value stock involved. So usually an independent stock taker is retained to come in, they roll their sleeves up, they um, value all of the stock on the night before completion. On the morning of completion, there is a new PBS number issued and the purchaser starts trading under that new PBS number. And then the solicitors and the banks all get busy and complete the sale and discharge any mortgages over the business, pay everybody out, pay the purchase price, and the new pharmacist gets the keys, which is a very, very exciting day. Very exciting. Now, you mentioned about the iterations, the due diligence, the PPS all those things, it's a lot of work and clearly it's important work. And I appreciate it's always a, it depends answer, but Georgie, put us in the ballpark. Like what are we talking in terms of time frame? there? Is that a, a, a rough three months, six months, nine months, two years? What are we talking? Yeah, no, you've made a good guess there. I mean, I usually say three months. Um, it can it can take a lot longer. It depends on the circumstances of the, the particular pharmacy. I've got one pharmacy that at the moment that we've been working on for over six months, but that's because um, the landlord is exceptionally slow. And that can sometimes happen because there's nothing in it for the landlord. You know, they don't particularly want to lose their trusted tenant that they've had for 30 years. Um, and there's nothing, it's work with no you know, immediate benefit for the landlord there. So, but I mean, three months is a reasonable time period. Less than that is difficult because like I say, you've got to get the landlord, you've got to get pharmacy council approval um, and you've got to get that new PBS number as well. And with these things, there's no point rushing it. You know, when people rush things, mistakes happen. You don't want anything to go wrong with a pharmacy purchase. I think three months sounds very reasonable. And as you said, you don't want things to go wrong and that can happen if things are rushed. Now, some pharmacists may be a little bit reluctant to pay legal fees. They might have a perception that it's going to cost them a lot of money. And I know this is a little bit of a rhetorical question around does having the assistance of a lawyer save money in the long run? But what can go wrong in the process if a lawyer isn't involved in that buying process? Well, I think the first thing that I'd say is it, it would be pretty, unless you've been a solicitor yourself before and then become a pharmacist, it would be pretty impossible to do a pharmacy purchase. 
even as a lawyer, it, it takes years of experience and practice to, to do these transactions to, to know what the, the loopholes are and, you know, where things can go wrong and avoid it. I've never known anyone purchase a, purchase a pharmacy with, without a lawyer or even try and sell a pharmacy without a lawyer. It's just too complicated. The other thing about having a lawyer is that if you've got a good lawyer um, and an experienced pharmacy lawyer, they've got a constant watch on what is going on during the transaction. Things can change. Things can come to light that no one has told the lawyers about or, or even thought is an issue. For example, um, I'm acting for a pharmacist at the moment who um, is going through the due diligence process, purchasing a pharmacy, and only by way of a, a casual conversation have we found out that part of the pharmacy is sublet to some doctors. So that's thrown up some questions about, uh, is there a written sublease? No, there isn't. Um, has the landlord given their consent to that sublease? No. Um, and also, has the pharmacy council given their consent to the contraction of the footprint of the pharmacy? Well, we're working on that one. Um, but, you know, if you need someone. It, there's a lot of project management with these transactions to make sure that certain things happen by certain times. And that's the role of the lawyer. It's much more complicated than buying a house. That's not always easy in itself, but um, there's so many more moving parts with buying a pharmacy. And in terms of what can go wrong, there are lots of things that can go wrong. You could be buying from someone, you know, in a worst case scenario, doesn't own the pharmacy or doesn't own all of the pharmacy. You could um, be buying a pharmacy with, with issues with the regulator, the pharmacy council. Uh, for example, as I said before, if there are unapproved changes to the name or the address or the size of the pharmacy, those kind of things, they need to be dealt with properly. Um, and one of the key things when you're a purchaser, or it's also a key thing when you're a seller, but from a different point of view, but with a purchaser, you want to have adequate warranties and indemnities in the contract so that you know that the financial records that have been given to you are reliable and they're accurate and they're not, not misleading. And you want a warranty from the vendor to that effect uh, and you want an indemnity um, because that's, that's probably the greatest area of risk when you're buying a business, that the business turns out not to be of the value that you've paid for it for some unknown reason. Um, I acted for a pharmacist a few years ago who bought, he was buying his second pharmacy um, and we had a warranty in the contract to say that all of the information about the employee entitlements is correct, accurate, and not misleading in any respect. On the first day that the pharmacist went in, on the completion date, one of the members of staff, key member of staff, went up to him and said, um, I'm due long service leave. Can I take my long service leave? Blah, blah, blah. And we looked back at the employee entitlements, and there was no long service leave on the list of entitlements. Now, the, the reason that had happened, it wasn't that the vendor was being misleading. It was just that the vendor had only given us the entitlements from when she had bought the business. But those employees had been there for donkey's years before that. And their entitlements went back donkey's years as well. But she, she hadn't thought about that when she gave us the info. Um, but luckily, we did have that warranty in the contract that said that they indemnify us in, for all of the information that's attached to the contract, including the employee entitlements. And within about three days, we'd had another cash payment to compensate my client for the, the true employee entitlements that were there. So um, it's making sure you've got the right warranties in there. If, for example, you've got a, you know, you're buying a business with a robot in there, in the pharmacy, 
that's a very expensive piece of equipment that you're paying for. Personally, I would be acting for asking for warranties that that's in good condition, it's been serviced, and that it will be in good condition on the date of completion. So it's those kind of things. I did want to say something here as well about financial due diligence, because that very same pharmacist I was just speaking about on another transaction um, had his pharmacy accountant do the due diligence on the last three years' financial statements. And there was a hole in the account. Something hadn't been included in the accounts that should have been. And our client um, managed to have over a million dollars taken off the purchase price. So he paid a million dollars less than he thought he was going to because his accountant had very cleverly identified this issue in the accounts. So that's how important it is. And yeah, I've got, like I say, I've got, I've got two current cases with this sublease of the premises to the doctors, which, which we're working through. So um, I, th I think you can, you can see that it's really important to have a lawyer, whoever that is, uh, acting for you and looking after your interests, because there's stuff going on that can cause a very expensive problem in the long run. And all things that uh, a pharmacist probably wouldn't be aware of and carry around in their head all the while, while they're usually the key person in the business actually being the pharmacist. Their job isn't to buy and sell pharmacies and, and businesses. So, Georgie, we know that many pharmacists go into business with trusted friends and colleagues that maybe they've worked in a pharmacy uh, right then and now or, or maybe in the past, and they do that with the best intentions. But how important is a partnership agreement and what are the legal considerations around those and when going into partnership with somebody it's important to have that agreement in place it's really really important to have a partnership agreement or a shareholder agreement and the reason for that is that like any partnership business partnerships are going to come to an end one day by whatever means they all they all come to an end and lots of them um we do see lots of pharmacy partnerships uh, pharmacists are, are generally very honourable people um, and we see a lot of very successful businesses without ownership agreements. Um, but we also do see a continuous stream of disputes between business partners. It's a constant uh, source of instructions for us. And if there is no ownership agreement, disputes can be much more difficult to resolve and much more expensive to resolve. So I think you know, certainly if I was going into business with someone, I would definitely have a legally binding, well-drafted partnership agreement because it's such an investment in the long term. I mean, hopefully you never have to pick the thing up ever again and never have to read it. But some business people do. A lot of business people do. Um, and a good ownership agreement should have a good dispute resolution mechanism. I'm a big fan of mediation. I've done a lot of mediations over the years um, with pharmacists who've been in dispute. Um, and a mediation is, is an alternative dispute resolution procedure whereby you basically, you appoint a mediator and that mediator doesn't um, act like a judge. It doesn't come to a decision about who's right and wrong, but basically you're in different rooms to your opponents and the mediator goes between the two rooms to try and find common ground between the parties and to try and find a resolution that everyone can live with and can save literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees if something goes to court. Um, so a good mediation clause in a partnership agreement is a great thing to have so that everybody has to go to mediation. The other really important thing when you're going into partnership is, particularly if you're a minority interest 
uh, holder in the business. So if you, for example, you, you, you're operating the business through a company, if you've got less than 25%, you can be outvoted basically on virtually everything. But there will still be, you know, you're still part owner of that business. And there are still things that, in my opinion, shouldn't happen without unanimous consent. For example, extending credit, borrowing money, uh, relocating the pharmacy, changing a franchise, all those big things, uh, appointing or removing key staff, you won't have any say in any of that necessarily if you don't have something in your shareholders agreement to say that uh, those decisions have to be unanimous. And then the other important thing about um, these agreements is that they should govern what everyone wants to happen when the business comes to an end. So somebody retires, somebody dies, somebody has an accident, someone has their registration as a pharmacist suspended or cancelled, these things happen. Uh, what's going to happen? Does the ongoing partner want the right to buy the outgoing partner out? And if so, what price should be paid? And this doesn't have to be done at the start of a partnership. This can be done. You could be in business 10 years and still decide that now is the, the right time to have an agreement. But it just helps the parties think through the big issues, how we're going to deal with them, and just commit it to paper and to an agreement. You talked about some interesting examples earlier around some issues, for example, the contraction of the floor space of a pharmacy who were subletting to some doctors. Pharmacy is a highly regulated area of health practice. What tips do you have for pharmacists so that they may avoid any issues with the regulators as they grow their pharmacy business from a legal perspective? Just always bear in mind how highly regulated pharmacy is. Um, and in New South Wales, obviously, the regulator is the Pharmacy Council of New South Wales. Um, and just think, every time you make a change in your business, do I need to get approval to this change? Um, so change of ownership, change of name, change of address, any, any change in your business, consider whether you need to go to the Pharmacy Council. Pharmacy Council are great in terms of guiding pharmacists, and there's a lot of information on the Pharmacy Council website. There's people like us who can provide advice and, you know, where we've seen these things happen before. A lot of pharmacists are entrepreneurs and they really throw themselves, as well as providing their important health services to their patients, um, they, there's a lot of empires built in in pharmacy world and it's fantastic to see and it's wonderful to be a part of, you know, acting for a pharmacist who is buying his first pharmacy or her first pharmacy and then goes and buys another and buys another and they grow and then you see them get married and they have their children and it's so rewarding and we love to try and build those long-term relationships with clients because apart from anything else we become part of the corporate knowledge of, of that business as it grows um, and um, but we also do sometimes see uh, issues where people get so busy and they get so successful that they forget sometimes that there's a regulator and that must never be forgotten um, and advice should be should be taken you know from the pharmacy council or whoever before you make a change with your business much of the value of a pharmacy business is in the goodwill of that business the loyal customers who repeatedly come back to that pharmacy the trusted pharmacy an important element of community health care how can the law help protect the goodwill of a pharmacy business and its branding? The goodwill in a health business attaches to, a, a lot of the time, the, the pharmacist 
who is working in the business. Um, people like to go back to the same pharmacist. They like to go back to the same dentist. They follow health practitioners around um, because they trust them and they've they've had their advice for years. Um, so when you're buying a pharmacy, um, what you don't want to do is find that the goodwill in that pharmacy has been eroded by the outgoing pharmacist moving to the pharmacy down the road or, you know, close by. So it's an important part of um, purchase contracts and sale contracts that there's a restraint clause on the outgoing health practitioner or the key people um, so that you know that the goodwill of the business is protected in that way. Um, if there is a particularly strong trademark or logo, then you want to check whether that's registered and you want to have those trademarks and logos assigned to you. And there's a separate legal agreement for assigning those, that intellectual property, as we call it, to the purchaser. And the business name, that's a, that's a large part of the goodwill of a business. Um, uh, make sure that the, the business name is registered to you so no one else can use that business name. I asked that question as a little bit of a highlight because I wanted to draw it out and, and get some answers on that of potentially what could be a dispute. And, and it may happen in a partnership or it may just potentially be when somebody's selling a, a pharmacy. Disputes do happen in a lot of businesses, especially ones where a partnership is the ownership structure. And we spoke about the importance of having partnership agreements a little while ago. But how does a lawyer actually help to prevent disputes in pharmacy businesses and what are I'm particularly interested in what are some of the common disputes that you have seen that people should probably be aware of and, and maybe not let those situations get to that point where they actually become a proper dispute a key is back to that ownership agreement the partnership agreement and the shareholder agreement to basically foreshadow what could happen but to give you an idea of some of the areas for disputes that I have experienced um one of the most memorable cases was actually a, a drug addicted pharmacist who was a partner in a pharmacy business. Um, he he basically absconded, and um, later he had his registration as a pharmacist cancelled, but he still has fifty percent ownership of a pharmacy business. And there's the poor ongoing pharmacist struggling to manage and run the whole business all on his own. And how uh, how does he deal with this? Um, dysfunctional partner. They did have a partnership agreement, but they never signed it, which was a frustration, although it wasn't a fantastic partnership agreement. It wasn't anything to do with me, I hasten to add. Um, but uh, the question was, how do, how do we expel a dysfunctional partner from the business? Um, it took months and months of correspondence during which he, he came and he went, he changed addresses, we couldn't find him. Uh, sometimes he would talk, sometimes he wouldn't talk. Uh, then when, when he finally started talking about selling his interest to the to the continuing partner, what price are you going to pay me for it? He wanted over and above market value. How are we going to value it? So it was months and months and months, of I think nine months of correspondence, expensive correspondence. Stress for the pharmacist ongoing was awful. And just generally, you know, so unfortunate if they had had a decent partnership agreement with an expulsion clause in it, um, and a, a valuation mechanism that they, they, that need not have happened. I've also been acting for a pharmacy business owner over the exact split of partnership shares, um, where one partner is saying it's 50-50, another one saying it's 60-40, um, long-standing partnership. 
Um, so that's, and again, there's no ownership agreement. There's no, I mean, the ownership agreement should set out who owns what in the business as a, a very basic point. I've acted for a, a pharmacist who was just generally um, tearing her hair out over the general bad behaviour of her partner a few years ago, um, inappropriate posts on the pharmacy Facebook page, just basically leading very quickly to a situation where they couldn't work with each other anymore. Uh, and then how do you, again, how do we get out of this situation? What's fair? Who's buying who out? Who's who's going to pay? And you end up, like I say, trapped in these negotiations. Um, one matter where the negotiations were just impossible um, and it, we tried to get it to mediation and the parties would not even agree on a mediator. We ended up having to apply to court to have an administrative receiver appointed to the pharmacy to have it sold as a going concern on the open market. So those are those are real life um, examples and there are only a few. There are There are many more examples where really very, very expensive disputes could be avoided if there was a, a good partnership agreement. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the lease of a pharmacy premises is a valuable asset because the pharmacy and PBS approval attaches that to the premises. And you spoke a little bit about that earlier as well. What should a pharmacist look out for in their premise lease? Well, as a first point, um, Obviously, the first thing probably most pharmacies will be looking at is the, the rent um, and rent increase clauses. So when um, when a pharmacist is taking uh, a pharmacy lease, I always make sure that they understand exactly what they're being required to pay, the rent, any outgoings, any contribution to a marketing fund, if they're in a, a shopping centre, for example, um, and also when and how the, the rent will increase. Um, and of particular interest that there's usually either a CPI increase every year or a fixed percentage increase. Um, but sometimes on the renewal of a lease, there, there might be a market rent review clause. Um, and when I'm acting for the pharmacist tenant, I always want to know that rent review can go down as well as up because some of these clauses seek to say there'll be a market rent review, but the rent will only change upwards. So those are some things to, ha to have a think about. Always very interested in relocation clauses in agreements, particularly in shopping centres. Landlords like to, um, like Westfield, like to record, uh, sorry, have the right to move you within the shopping centre. Um, and I'm always interested to know what rights of compensation are going to be given to the tenants if they are moved, because these things do happen. You know, they decide they're going to knock down part of the shopping centre and redevelop it and they want you to move in the interim. Um, so that's really important to understand relocation. Then there are things called demolition and redevelopment clauses, again, often in um, shopping centre leases, uh, whereby the landlord reserves the right to demolish all or part of the building and um, basically to terminate the lease and um, not pay you compensation. Those are quite common clauses. Um, and again, redevelopment clauses, the issues are similar, that the landlord reserves the right to redevelop move you, uh, just terminate the lease and generally what compensation rights are you going to be afforded. And it's to make sure that um, the pharmacist goes in to that shopping centre and to that lease with their eyes open about what could happen. And this doesn't come as a hor horrible shock, you know, four years into the lease. So um, obviously the other thing that you should look for in 
premises leases are a request for personal guarantees um, from pharmacists, the individual pharmacists rather than their companies, and make sure that a pharmacist understands that a personal guarantee is opening up their personal interests and their personal assets, such as their home, to liability for the pharmacy's liability. Sometimes, I mean, that's sometimes unavoidable, but it's just making sure that they understand what they're signing up to. I think those points you make around the relocation and the demolition and development are very important because I think as business owners, pharmacists, but any business owner, their business is the peak of what they're worried about, but their lease is just one of many for a landlord. And so the landlord potentially without sending derogatory about them, just they are kind of just pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. One lease is not the be all and end all of their business world. And so it's important that pharmacists remember that. Now, we've spoken a lot about lawyers in the early stages of buying a pharmacy and also disputes along the way with partnership agreements. We've spoken about some key phases and situations during ownership. Let's look at the other end though. Let's imagine that we're selling a pharmacy, we're we're off to the beach, we're going to retire. What's the role of a lawyer when a pharmacy is being sold? How does the lawyer help that process go smoothly at the other end? It's a similar process to when you're acting for a buyer. Um, and you basically, uh, when you're acting for a vendor, um, you are drawing up the contract usually uh, and and you're gathering all the information about the business. And you have to make sure, you have to do your own due diligence, even when you're selling a business, to make sure that everything that you're putting in the contract is, is correct. You've got the right business name. The owner is the registered owner with the pharmacy council. Uh, who's the tenant on the lease because it could be a service company that's the tenant on the lease so you're checking and you're verifying all of these different pieces of information about the business and it's really important um, when you're drawing up a contract to sell to consider what again the warranties because this time it's your client that's giving the warranties to the purchaser purchasers there'll be very few purchasers who will agree to buy a pharmacy without some kind of warranties but how far do you go? What is there anything that the most important thing? Is there anything that you need to disclose? Is there any litigation? Have you got? Have you had workers' compensation claims? Um, have you had any notices under the lease? For example, a redevelopment notice or a resumption notice from an, an authority. And it, the solicitor should be teasing out in the conversations with the selling pharmacist whether there's anything to disclose. Because the greatest danger in my mind when you're selling a business is that you don't disclose something, you give a warranty about it and an indemnity, and a year down the track, the purchaser comes back and says, you didn't tell me about this, and you've, you've got litigation going on, um, people suing each other for damages. That that's, look, that's never happened on any of my matters. Um, and it's because of the amount of time and work that goes in to make sure that you know everybody's across everything basically. Restraints are very important when you're selling. Are you happy to give restraints or do you want to be able to work within a particular vicinity of, of the uh, pharmacy that you're leaving? Um, warranties, if a purchase is asking for a lot of warranties, that can you limit them in, in amount to a dollar value? And can you limit, can you put a time period in, say 12 months after completion, within which if they haven't made the claim, then they can't make a claim after that time. Um, stock is always a consideration with pharmacies. Um, how is the stock going to be valued and paid for? Consideration of the employee entitlement information. Is that correct? Is that accurate? Are we quite sure about that? 
And like I say, it's project management role. Uh, and there's a lot of co cooperation that goes on between lawyers for vendors and purchasers to make sure that things happen because it's in everyone's interest to make sure that the, the transaction actually completes and there's no, no trouble along the way. Georgie, great chat today. Very insightful. I love all the little stories and examples that you added into your answers. It really does sort of drive them home and, and bring them to life, so to speak. If people want to continue the conversation with you, they're listening today, they think, geez, Georgie sounds like a great lawyer. Where can they go for more information and advice? Well, they can find me on the Meridian Lawyers website under the People tag. You can click on the link to an email to me. You also get my telephone number. Um, and there's um, also information is available at the Pharmacy Guild branches. But I'm always happy to have a chat with, with anyone who's maybe thinking about buying or selling a pharmacy or any of the issues that I've talked about. Happy to have a, a, a chat through that and see whether we can help. Outstanding. Georgie O'Dell from Meridian Lawyers, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your advice and your expertise around why legal advice is so important in a pharmacy business. Thanks for having me, Daniel. What a great discussion. As Georgina mentioned, the dynamic nature of the pharmacy sector continues to bring about significant change, especially in pharmacy ownership and practice. The profession is tightly regulated and operates in a highly commercial and competitive environment. The Pharmacy Guild is dedicated to supporting your business and together with Meridian can provide legal support and advice regarding buying and selling a pharmacy, rent, partnerships, mediation and dispute resolution, ownership regulation, new pharmacy approvals and other business operations. For more information, visit guild.org.au forward slash resources forward slash business hyphen operations and also meridianlawyers.com.au forward slash health hyphen sector forward slash pharmacy. That's Meridian, M-E-R-I-D-I-A-N. I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 82 of the PBCM podcast. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.